It is now June in the Rumi year 1302, or 1886 by the Christian calendar. He had fallen asleep over the German botanist H.G. Reichenbach's reclassification of Asinita Hrubiana, a many-flowered orchid recently discovered in South America with stiff, unarticulated brown lips. Camille has slept uneasily. In his dreams, an undertow of small, leather-skinned men, faceless, agile, pulled him down. Jakob, ever vigilant, as are all residents of the wooden houses of Istanbul, must have come in and extinguished the oil lamp. Camille splashes water on his face from the basin on the marble washstand to dispel the numbing hollowness he always feels in those grey moments between waking and the first soothing intricacies of his daily routine, shaving, wrapping his fingers around the calm heat of a steaming glass of tea, turning the pages of the newspaper. The mirror shows a lean, tired face, thin lips pressed in a grim line beneath his moustache, eyes obscured by unruly black hair. A single bolt of grey arcs above his left brow. He quickly rubs pomade in his wet hands and slicks down his hair, which springs up again immediately. With an exasperated sigh, he turns to Jakob, who is holding out his trousers. Jakob is a thin, doer man in his thirties, with high cheekbones and a long face. He waits with the preoccupied look of a lifelong servant, no longer concerned with the formalities of rank, but simply intent on his task. I wonder what has happened, Camille mutters. Believing himself to be a man of even temperament, he is wary of the surfeit of emotion that would cause someone to pound on his door in the middle of the night. Jakob helps him into a white shirt, stambouline frock coat, and yellow kid boots, intricately tooled. Made by a master bootmaker in Aleppo, according to a method passed only from father to son, they are as soft as the skin at a woman's wrist, but indestructible and impervious to both knife and water. Etched in the leather inside the shaft is a grid of tiny talismanic symbols that call on powers beyond those of a bootmaker to strengthen the wearer. Camille is a tall man, slim and well-muscled, but his slightly rounded shoulders and upward-tilting chin convey the impression that he is bending forward to inquire about something, a man lost in thought, bowed over old manuscripts. When he looks up, his moss-green eyes contradict this otherworldliness with their force and clarity. He is a man who controls his environment by comprehending it. As a result, he is uninterested in things beyond his control and exasperated by that beyond his comprehension. Fate belongs in the first category. Family, friends, women inhabit the second. His hands are in constant motion, fingertips slipping over a short string of amber beads he keeps in his right-hand pocket. The amber feels warm, alive to his touch. He senses a pulse, his own, magnified. The fingers of his father and grandfather before him have worn tiny, flat planes into the surface of the beads. When his fingers encounter these platforms, Camille feels part of a mortal chain that settles him in his own time and place. It explains nothing, but it imparts a sense of peace. He lives frugally with a minimum of servants in a small ochre-coloured wood-frame villa that he inherited from his mother. The house is set within a garden, shaded by old umbrella pines, cypress and mulberry trees, on the Bosphorus shore above Beshiktash. 
The house had been part of his mother's dowry. She spent her last years there with her two children, preferring the quiet waterfront community, where everyone knew her and had known her parents and grandparents, to the palatial mansion on a hill overlooking the Golden Horn, from which his father, Alp Pasha, minister of gendarmes, had governed the province of Istanbul. Kamil kept the boatman who for years had ferried his father on weekends to his wife's villa. Every morning, Bedri the boatman's knotted arms row Kamil down the strait to the Tophani Quay, where a phaeton waits to carry him up the steep hill to the courthouse on the Grande Rue de Pera. On days when his docket is light, Kamil walks from the quay instead, delighted to be outdoors. After his mother died, Kamil had a small winter garden added to the back of the house. As magistrate, he has less time now for botanical expeditions that require weeks of travel, so he tends and studies the orchids he has gathered at his home from many corners of the empire. Taking a deep breath, Camille strides down the wide staircase to the entry hall. Waiting impatiently inside the circle of lamps held by Camille's servants is a short red-faced man in traditional baggy trousers, his vest askew and one end of his cummerbund coming undone. His red felt cap is wound in a striped cloth. He shifts his weight restlessly from one sturdy leg to the other. Upon seeing Camille, he bows deeply, touching the fingers of his right hand against his lips and then his forehead in a sign of respect. Camille wonders what has happened to agitate the headman to such an extent. A murder would have been brought to the attention of the district police first, not to the magistrate at his home in the middle of the night. Peace upon you. What brings you here at this early hour? Upon you be peace, Pasha Bey. The headman stutters, his round face reddening further. I am Ibrahim, headman of Middle Village. Please excuse my intrusion, but a matter has come up in my district that I think you must be told about. He pauses, his eyes darting into the shadows behind the lamps. Camel signals to the servants to leave the lamps and withdraw. What is it? Effendi, we found a body in the water by the middle village mosque. Who found it? The garbage scavengers? These semi-official collectors begin just before dawn to gather the refuse washed up overnight on the shores and streets of the city. After extracting useful items for themselves, they load the rest onto barges to be dumped into the Sea of Marmara where the current disperses it. Camel turns his head toward the sitting-room door and the window beyond. A thin wash of light silhouettes the trees in his garden. He sighs and turns back to the headman. Why not report this to the police chief of your district? Camel shares jurisdiction with two other magistrates for the European side of the Bosphorus, all the way from the grand mosques and covered markets in the south, where the strait loses itself in the Sea of Marmara, to the frieze of villages and stately summer villas extending along its wooded hills north to the Black Sea. Middle Village is little more than half an hour's ride north of Camille's villa. Because it is a w woman, Bay, the headman stutters. A woman? A foreign woman, Bay. We believe Frankish. A European woman? Camille feels a chill of apprehension. How do you know she's Frankish? She has a gold cross on a chain around her neck. Camille snaps impatiently. She could just as easily be one of our Christian subjects. The headman looks at the marble-tiled floor. She has yellow hair and a heavy gold bracelet 
and something else. Camille sighs. Why do I have to drag everything out of you? Can't you simply tell me everything you saw? The headman looks up helplessly. A pendant bay that opens like a walnut? He cups his hands together, then parts them. Inside one shell is the Tugra of the Padishah. May Allah support and protect him. He reaches one cupped hand forward, then the other. Inside the other are odd characters we thought it might be Frankish writing. Camel frowns. He can't think of any explanation for the Sultan's personal signature to be on a piece of jewellery around the neck of a woman outside the Sultan's household, much less one with European writing. It makes no sense. The Tugra, the Sultan's seal, is affixed on special possessions of the imperial household and onto official documents by a special workshop on the palace grounds. The Tugranuvis, royal scribes charged with creating the intricate and elegant calligraphic design of the royal name and the royal engravers, are never allowed to leave the palace for fear that they could be kidnapped and forced to affix the signature to counterfeit items. Since the empire is so large and such forgeries might go unnoticed, the only solution is to keep the sultan's hands close by his sleeves. Camille has heard that these scribes carry a fast-acting poison on their person as a further precaution. Only three people hold the royal seal used for documents, the sultan himself, the grand vizier, and the head of the harem household, a trusted old woman who grew up in the palace. Royal objects made of gold, silver, and other valuable materials are engraved with the Tugra only on their orders. The headman's roughened fingers clasp and unclasp as he waits before Camille.